Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy 3, and we will look at the last three verses, verses 14 through 16. Most years I do some sort of New Year's message, either at the very end or at the, or at the beginning. And um, To close out 2021, I'd like to ask for your indulgence that we, we're going to be just a little bit more reflective than usual. So the title of this message is Reflections on the Year of the Church. We set 2021 as the year of the church here at Grace, and we'll talk more about that in a bit as we spend some time reflecting. But really, first, to drive and define our thoughts, we come to the core, or really the theological center of 1 Timothy. When we get to 1 Timothy 3.14, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul takes a breath, and he gives this short but power-packed exclamation First, the church of Jesus Christ, and then of Jesus Christ himself. And so I'd like to just simply do two things this morning. First, I'd like to show you the, the majesty and the importance of this central and key text in 1 Timothy 3, because it really is a standalone text. It's difficult to make it part of a series. It just stands by itself in such majesty. And then, if you would indulge me, I'd like to reflect a bit on this past year, which is still bound very tightly to the year prior because of COVID-19 and the government and the way they have treated churches and the churches themselves, lots of those issues still intertwine together. And so we'll first, though, look at this text and really set the stage for our other comments. Let's just read this together. First Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Well, Paul says that he hopes to come back to Ephesus. No one knows if Paul made it for another visit to Ephesus, but it was his desire to help bolster the church there. And you may recall that Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus as his apostolic representative to kind of shake things up, not only to preach the word, but to confront false teachers, elders in the church who were using authority other than scripture to gain a following. We can see here that Paul yearned to go and only heaven will tell us if he ever made it. But we do know that Timothy was faithful there. In fact, all the way to the end of his life when Timothy died a martyr's death in Ephesus. But Paul says that if he's delayed, the reason for what he's written in chapters 1 through 3, the warnings against false teachers, conduct in the church by women and men, the detailed qualifications of elders and deacons that we've looked at, that if he's delayed... Paul has written these things so that Timothy might be able to instruct the church how they're, how they're to behave. How they're to behave in the household of God. Now, to be very clear, this is not how to behave in church. This is how to behave as part of the church, of the household of God. We take our orders from the word of God, not from the world. 
because the church is the assembly of the living God. And this makes sense for him to use this metaphor here of the household. He's already mentioned households in kind of the normal family fashion several times. Chapter 3, verse 4, an elder must keep manage his own household well. Verse 5, if someone does not know how to manage his own household. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband and one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So he's setting us up to think in terms of the home, of the family. And now he just takes that picture to a much higher level, to a greater level. It's not the only time he's used this metaphor. Ephesians 2.19, Paul says, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Isn't that more personal than members of a church? We're members of the household of God. He said in Galatians 6.10, You are the household of faith. You're not the church uh, in terms of just being a bunch of people that are gathered together. You're part of a family, the family of faith, the household. Paul is emphasizing that the church is family, and that family is under the banner of what? Of the heavenly father. We're under the banner of a father through his firstborn son. Listen to this classic, theologically rich verse that has implications for the church as a family. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many, what? Brothers. And we obviously can infer the sisters as well. The church of Jesus Christ is your eternal family. I know many of you here well, and many of you here have blood relatives who do not follow Christ. And you've expressed to me, and we know this to be a universal truth in the church, that you have more kinship with your brothers and sisters in Christ than you do with your own family sometimes. Because we are under the banner of the cross. It's no wonder that Jesus said that following him means following him at all costs, even at the cost of family. Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. When he says hate, that's not the emotion of hatred. That's not loathing. What he's talking about is loyalty. Anybody who's more loyal to family than to Christ is a false believer. Do you catch that? That's the cost of following Christ. The church is our family. And of course, we pray for our blood relatives to be part of the real family, part of the church. And our eternal family, the church, has a mandate, a calling, a central directive. And here it is, right here in verse 15. We are the pillar and the buttress. It means a foundation stone of the truth. This is very different than a typical American view of the church as some sort of service organization here to please people. Instead, we have a mission together, and joining with the church means joining with the mission. Just because of habit, we very often say, welcome to Grace Bible Church. What should we say? Welcome, comma, Grace Bible Church, right? And don't make fun of anybody who says welcome to Grace Bible Church. We want to welcome everyone. But we have a mission together. And that mission is to be the pillar and the buttress, the foundation stone of the truth. You may recall at the celebration banquet, I asked the question, because we looked at this verse, what are the qualities of foundation stones and pillars? What's the, what does that metaphor mean? Why does he use that metaphor? Foundation stones and pillars only work well when they're interlocked with the others. That's how they work. 
You can't have a church filled with individualists all looking out for themselves. That doesn't work. And the pillar is to be made up of identical stones stacked together. That we are conformed to one image. We are conformed to that which makes us a good pillar. Foundation stones and pillars all play a vital part. And when you take one away, it hurts the entire structure. We need all of us. Foundation stones and pillars, in fact, in ancient temples, had an archaeological or, or an architectural purpose, rather, and that was to point the eyes upward. And at the top of these pillars was called a lintel or a frieze, and it was, a, it was long slabs of stone, and engraved on those long slabs of stone, these lintels, were the gods or the god that was the uh, primary god of that particular temple. And so what do we do taking that same metaphor as pillars? We're to be pointing upward to what, rather to whom, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We've said this for years and years here. This is our theme. This is our motto at Grace Bible Church. What is it we do? Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim that we might present everyone mature in Christ. What does it mean to present everyone mature in Christ? that the pillars and the foundation stones are smoothed and shaped to work the way they're supposed to. Can you imagine trying to build a a pillar and you have a a really good stone and another one just like it goes on top and another one just like it goes on top and then you go just dig up some big rock from a field and try to stick it on there and stack on that. It doesn't work. Everyone mature in Christ. We're the household of God. This is a family term. It's not just a metaphor. It is a description of how we function. It's a family term meaning that we're more than just a collection of people who choose to hang out together. This is the, this is the tragedy and the sadness of church hopping. We're a family. You, you don't hop in and out of families. And so there are implications if we're the household of God. There's a first implication. There must be rules of conduct. We have those. It is the stipulations of the New Covenant, the New Testament. There must be an authority structure. 1 Timothy 3 just went through that, elders and deacons. There must be a a respect and a mutual care among us. And then there must be a team effort to accomplish the greater mission. That is to uphold the truth of the gospel and of Christ. I've gotten to spend a lot of time with a lot of families and I've noticed that the families that function well and that are, are dynamic they have a goal. They have a mission. They accomplish things together as a family. They're, they're not just a bunch of people who happen to be blood relatives living under the same roof because it's more financially economical to do so. They have goals. They have reasons for being a family. And the reason for us being a family is to uphold the truth of the gospel and of Christ. Now the Apostle Paul gives what many scholars believe is a fragment or a verse even from an ancient Christian hymn. Your Bible probably presents the second half of verse 16 in poetic form. And what we have here is a short burst of truth that really encapsulates in very, very brief form what it is that we're protecting. What are we to be uh, the pillar of? Paul introduces the short burst of truth in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Let's stop right there for just a minute. In your English Bible, we confess appears as a verb, an action word. In Greek, though, it's, a, it's an adverb. It's a modifier of a verb. 
and it really could be translated by common confession. That which we all believe because it's revelatory truth from God. It's come from God. Our common confession. It's a word that means it's something that's undeniable. It's certain. It's absolute. And this common confession, Paul calls the mystery. What is a mystery? It's not something we don't know. A mystery in the New Testament is something that used to be unknown that is now known. It's something that we have. It's knowledge that we have. And it is the mystery of godliness. What does he mean by godliness? Now, Paul has already spoken of the mystery of the faith back in verse 9, but this is more directly about the body of truths that we believe. The mystery of godliness here includes the idea of the body of truth that we believe, but it also has the idea of living a life that's rightly impacted as a response to that body of truth. It's not just pure intellectual belief. This is how Paul uses the term godliness every single time in the pastoral epistles. In fact, it's the only time he uses this term is in these three books of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And it always means the same thing. Outward evidences of genuine faith and a true worshipful, worshipful reverence for God. There's the outward evidence of genuine faith. And so the mystery of godliness is not just that we believe Christ, but we believe Christ to the point that it has changed our lives. It's changed our, our way of living. And now Paul gives that which we are to uphold and to protect the center, the core, the truth, and that is the, the person of Jesus Christ. The revelation of the gospel is centered in Christ. It is centered in a person. Christianity is not centered in the system of ethics, but in a person. That's why it's so ridiculous for the world to try to define what the church is supposed to be doing. They can't understand the church because they don't understand Christ. You cannot make judgments about the church if you don't know Christ, because the church is built on Christ. You've probably seen this in the news, but you want to know what a dead giveaway is for an unbeliever trying to look like a Christian? usually to promote some social agenda by twisting the ministry of Jesus, here's the dead giveaway. He or she says something like, if you truly want to follow the teachings of Jesus, then you must be compassionate and merciful. This is a consistent misuse of the person of Christ to try to promote a personal agenda. In recent news, and this is just one of many times it's happened over decades, a recent LA Times article was titled, What would Jesus do? He'd get vaccinated, that's what. Or how about this article written just a few days ago? Love thy neighbor. United Kingdom Prime Minister Johnson urges people to follow Jesus' teaching, get the vaccine this Christmas. These are just the latest versions of the so-called teachings of Jesus to define what it means to be a Christian. But this idea of being a Christian meaning following the teachings of Jesus is a dead giveaway because the gospel of Christ is not follow the teachings of Jesus. The gospel of Christ is follow Jesus. Follow Jesus himself. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. That's what Jesus said. We follow the person. Christianity is not a system of ethics that we can bend to whatever suits our own agenda. And the irony is, is those who say follow the teachings of Jesus don't have a clue what they are. Now, to be certain, to know Jesus Christ as your Savior means that you obey Him. But you obey Him out of love. But we obey the clear, direct commands given in Scripture. 
Not some Satan-inspired, demon-pleasing, people-pandering, agenda-pushing, government-invented, unbeliever-promoted, biblically-ignorant, gospel-avoiding, twisted version based in what I would call spiritual witlessness and unfamiliarity with the person of Christ. Why would Jesus get a vaccine? He's eternal. Paul gets to the core of what we're to uphold. It's not the teachings of Jesus. It is the person of Jesus. The teachings come later. And what he gives us are six compact statements of the person of Christ. These just compact, really uh, delightful little statements. And in fact, we'll label these statements theologically. First, he speaks of the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ. He said he was manifested in the flesh. This is our theological term, the incarnation of Christ. It's Latin for in the flesh. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glorious of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Why is this so spectacular? Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen God. You have seen the father. And there he is right among us. Paul's statement here, by the way, points to the whole event of Christ's life on earth, not just to his birth. Manifested here is a passive verb. He, he obeyed his Father's will. What was his Father's will? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Paul tells us that we are the pillar and the buttress of the truth of the incarnation of Christ. He also speaks of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ. He says he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. What does vindicated mean? It's a Greek word that means to be proven right, to be authenticated, to be shown to be what you actually say you are. The Holy Spirit vindicated Christ at Christ's baptism by means of a visible manifestation. Matthew 3 records that when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God the Son being baptized, God the Spirit resting on him and God the Father declaring that he is pleased with his Son. Jesus did countless miracles by the power of the Spirit. The end of the Gospel of John tells us that he did so many miracles that the libraries of the world couldn't fill the record of them. But the main way that Jesus was vindicated as the Son of God who paid in full the penalty of the sins of all who would believe is his resurrection. Romans 1.4 Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. This speaks of the Spirit's part in the resurrection of Christ. He's vindicated. He is the Son of God. He is eternal. Jesus, even now, in the same body that He came out of the tomb in. We're also to be a pillar and buttress of what we would call the authentication of Christ. The authentication of Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. If you read through the Gospels, the angels are are a regular part of the ministry of Jesus. Angels ministered to Christ. They appeared to Christ at special times in his ministry on earth. 
They appeared at his birth. That's a, a big deal. We, we talk about the angels all the time at Christmas time. They're a huge part of our Christmas celebration. He appeared at his temptation. Matthew 4, Mark 1, to minister to Jesus at the end of his temptation. Angels appeared in his prayerful anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22 tells us this, that the angels ministered to him. And of course, they appeared at his resurrection because nobody knew where Jesus was. So the angels were there to tell them that he is risen. Now, just a side note here. In this little compact theological statement, we don't have the death of Christ explicitly mentioned. But when you have the resurrection of Christ, what does that imply? His death. And so it's there. And where's the last time we see angels in association with the ministry of Christ on earth at his ascension? What a classic scene from Acts chapter 1 that Jesus has ascended into heaven and and the 11 disciples, Judas is gone by now, the 11 disciples are there and we have this picture of them staring up into the sky and their mouths just kind of falling open. And then these angels appear and say, why are you looking up? He's coming back. And they give that comfort. And so Christ is authenticated. He's the only human being in all of history. The angels appear and minister to him all the time, all the time, all the time. We would also see the proclamation of Christ. He's manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. Jesus predicted this would happen. In fact, he commanded that it happen. Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is quite amazing, actually, because Jesus was a Jew. And the fact that his work of salvation includes the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles. This was a wonder. This was even scandalous to the Jews. Ephesians 3, 6, Paul said this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. As a matter of fact, proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, that was Paul's unique calling. That was his mission. That was his ministry. He said in Romans eleven thirteen. now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. 1 Timothy 2.7, he said, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. What was it that Paul proclaimed? He did not proclaim a system. He didn't proclaim a theory. He didn't proclaim a viewpoint. He didn't proclaim ethics. He didn't proclaim an ethical system called what would Jesus do? He preached and proclaimed a person, and that is Jesus. We could give another theological label, the occupation of Christ. The occupation of Christ. He is believed on in the world. Believed on in the world. Where is Jesus now? Well, he is in heaven. But is he occupying the world one soul at a time? Absolutely. Through the church, Christ has been occupying Satan's territory. We've been, we've been making strides. How do we know this? Because heaven, every single day, gets filled with more people who were saved on earth to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. You know, think about this. Paul's spiritual opponents in Ephesus complained in Acts 19.26. They're griping and they say, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people, turned away a great many people from what? From false gods. 
Or how about this? Acts 17, 6, some of the apostles were accused by their spiritual enemies. These men have turned the world upside down. That's just a couple of decades after Christ. We've had 2,000 more years of the gospel being spread. Many times in his epistles, Paul uses the metaphor of the church that we are the body of Christ. We're the visible manifestation of Jesus on this earth. We're the visible representation of the presence of God here. This is why we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So there's the occupation of Christ. And finally, we are to be a pillar and buttress of the truth of the glorification of Christ. The glorification of Christ. He was taken up in glory. This is not just a specific reference to the ascension of Christ into heaven, but his current state as now being glorified. He will always be glorified. He will never be out of the state of being glorified. Jesus prayed before his own death in John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, Jesus being taken up to glory and to be glorified proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is the central feature of the gospel, and there is no gospel without Christ. By the way, taken up in glory has a strong implication with the rest of Scripture to teach us that he's coming back as well. And so this just compact little fragment of even a, a hymn, very likely, Paul is declaring a person. And let me just summarize this. There's, there's three purposes to this declaration. Just a little list. First of all, the gospel is centered on Christ. The gospel is centered on Christ. The gospel is centered in a person, not in a set of ideas. The second purpose, it is a mystery now revealed. It is a mystery now revealed. If it's a mystery revealed, what's our purpose? Our purpose is to continue revealing that mystery. And we love this as Christians, don't we? That moment when you see the dawning realization on somebody's face, when the mystery is now revealed, when they see that I've been denigrating God by not worshiping Christ, I need to repent. And the third purpose is that all opponents of the gospel are wrong. All opponents of the gospel are wrong. You know, in the past couple of years, there's been uh, a lot of questions about, well, how do we know whether an idea about COVID or about vaccines or about masks or whatever, how do we know that's right or wrong? It's very simple. Anything that opposes the gospel is wrong across the board. There's nothing difficult about that. The gospel is centered on Christ. It is a mystery now revealed. Opponents of the gospel are wrong. So to encapsulate that Paul was preaching a person, not an ethical system, Paul wrote to the, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.2 to just explain how focused he is on Christ. And he said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, if you would permit me just for a few minutes as your shepherd, I'd like to do a little reflecting on this past year. It's really linked at the hip with the previous historic year, 2020 as well. And we'll come back to this text here in a bit because it'll tie in. I'd like to just reflect on a few topics. First of all, why we chose the theme of 2021 as the year of the church. I'd also like to talk to you about the content of truth that we put out over this year. I'd like to talk to you about God's extra kindnesses to us this year. And then if you'd give me just a moment, I'd like to give you a couple of personal reflections, some things I've learned 
thought about heavily as your pastor. I just want to reflect on a few things. First of all, why we chose the theme of 2021 to be the year of the church. We don't do a theme for every year. We've, We've done it sometimes, but this past year it seemed like we needed to. There were a couple of very important reasons for this. The year of the church. Beginning in 2020, those outside the church stepped over a major line that they have no right to telling the church how to be the church, when they can be the church, where they can be the church. As a local church, if you were here during that time, we did our best to be cooperative for as long as we thought reasonable. And frankly, we've been over backwards to be as cooperative as we could with government mandates. But ultimately, as one pastor friend said to me, over time, the government's motives didn't pass the smell test, unquote. The church came under assault from every conceivable angle with unbelievers telling the church what we're to be about. And we vehemently reject that. They have no basis upon which to tell us what to do. We bow to no one but Christ. Let me put it this way. Christ birthed the church. Christ purchased the church with his own blood. And Christ named the church. If he gives birth and he purchases, doesn't it follow that he gets to name the church? You remember what he named us? You are ecclesia, the gathering of Christ. That's our name. There's a second reason we made last year the year of the church. Not only were those outside the walls of the church coming against the church, many inside the walls of the church were coming against the church. They caved into pressure to believe lies. There's some of the lies that church leaders have believed the church's job is to save lives wrong the church's job is to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth another lie we can save lives by not gathering wrong we save souls by gathering another lie the government knows what's best for us frankly most unbelievers don't fall for that one the bible gives the government one duty To protect us from evil people, which becomes a problem when the evil people are the one in the government. That is the only duty of government, according to Scripture. And only God gets to define government because he invented it. See also Genesis 9. The government is to slay the wicked. That's what it's for. Not to add countless non-Scripture ordained oppressive controlling measures to our lives. Another lie Many inside the walls of the church caved into. Many in the church forgot the sovereignty of God. And we're terrified. You know what Psalm 139 says? It says that the days of every human being were numbered before the foundation of the world. Let me put it to you this way. COVID is God's will. That's not my opinion. That is the prophet Jeremiah. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Do you believe the sovereignty of God or not? It's a very simple question. And COVID revealed a lot who don't. Another lie the church bought into. Many in the church forgot that every human being is going to die. We're so obsessed with COVID statistics. I'll give you a really easy statistic. In 100 years, everyone will be dead that's alive today. Maybe a baby or two. 
it's not our job to extend the earthly life of people who will face judgment in hell when they die. But to continue to be faithful to proclaim that there is hope in Christ beyond death. That's our job. And on top of that, we've been assaulted by the wicked, false religion of wokeness. We've been assaulted by the wicked, false God of gender identity. Churches all over the country have started proclaiming what is now being called the woke gospel. Supporting gender identity bullies. Doing things like trying to fit the gospel of Christ into the divisive, hate-filled, woke agenda. Things like supporting, even baptizing people according to whatever gender they decide to be. In other words, once again, the church has often fallen for the lie that we should try to placate a world that already hates us. You cannot placate the world. That it becomes more important to please the world and its wicked systems rather than pleasing Christ by proclaiming the only answer to all human ills, and that is that there is salvation from sin in Christ through the cross. That's it. So we felt like we needed to make a year-long statement. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Amen? I'd like to reflect back on the content of the truth we put out this year. I, I do this every year personally. I don't usually share it with you, but I thought I would share it with you. What did we put out this year? Nearly every Sunday morning message this year was focused on the church. We began the year with a short two-part series we called The Listener's Guide to Preaching. We looked at Peter's glorious sermon in Acts 2 as a guide to sharpening your listening ears to know the Word of God and know the God of the Word. From 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8, we looked for five weeks at evangelistic prayer. We gave four reasons for evangelistic prayer to help ourselves be faithful, to please God, to trust in the gospel, and to follow after great men of the faith who pray evangelistically. From 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, we did a short series we called The Godly Women of the Church. We looked at godly design, God's design for the Christian woman. We looked at godly adornment, godly works, godly learning, godly support, godly design, and godly influence. And because one of the standout features of the New Testament church is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we took three Sundays to examine the Holy Spirit in the past, in the present, and in the future. And then we embarked on a long journey together of taking a detailed and thorough look from 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 at the church's shepherds. We looked at the nobility of the task. We looked at the basics about being shepherds, the shepherd's heart, how to prepare to be a shepherd, warnings to shepherds, including remembering that this is Christ's church, not ours. We looked at vocational and volunteer shepherds, the members' duty to the shepherds, the shepherds' duty to the members. And finally, we looked in detail at the qualifications of a shepherd. Why spend all this time on that? Because as the leadership of the church goes, so goes the whole church. We took one Sunday to look at the wonderful gift given to the churches, the book of Revelation, and we saw that Revelation is focused on a person, the king. We looked at the king and his people, the king and his dominion, the king and his war, the king and his arrival. We even did one message on the church of Philadelphia with the application that the church needs to learn to take risks for the sake of the gospel and for the kingdom. The church's job is not to stay safe. The church's job is to do that which is inherently unsafe. We looked at the church's servants from 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, the deacons, and sprinkled in here at various places. We did things like looking at the doctrines of grace. Our friend and pastor from Brazil, Mark Stuckey, even preached to us, and his sermon title was The Church. I thought that was appropriate. 
And just to give you a sneak preview, beginning in mid-January in preparation for our prayerful move to a new facility, I'm going to finish all of 1 Timothy in a series that we're calling Well Done, Good and Faithful Church. And we'll see what a faithful church does. I'm going to give you 14 messages on this. Here's what a faithful church does. Understanding the gospel, leading by example, focusing the leadership, purifying the individuals, helping the vulnerable, discipling the women, evaluating the leadership, honoring the name, guarding the flock, exhorting to contentment, fighting the good fight, preaching the word, giving in generosity, and guarding the truth. Now, many of you were here at the end of 2018 when we began a preaching series on the faithful church in Jerusalem. This was in order to prepare us to start our joyful generosity giving campaign and we will complete our journey to a new facility by preaching on the faithful church again. So we're determined to continue to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. Why is this more important than ever before? We've seen something in the Western world that we have not ever seen and that is governments now testing the waters of oppressing the church. And this is not going to be the last time because they were quite successful in many cases. This is also important because many in the church have fallen for definitions of the church given by those who aren't believers. The unbeliever cannot define the church that somehow we're to be those who enforce edicts and mandates far outside of God's definition of government. That we should be the willing partner to do the bidding of the government instead of being faithful to Christ only. What other content? Our Steadfast Bible Conference this year was on the church. We had wonderful guest speakers exhorting us to remain faithful, to love the church, to follow Christ and Christ alone as the sole head. At the Steadfast Bible Conference, we released our book, The Essential Church. The Essential Church makes the case that the church must be the church no matter what and that there is only one single authority, the head of the church, the king of all the kings, the Lord of the church, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We obey him and him alone. And we highlighted in this book the non-negotiables of the church. And at the top of that list is gathering together and doing those actions prescribed in the Bible. So that's the content we tried to put out last year to just nail those truths down as, as hard as we could. I'd also like to reflect on God's extra kindness to us this year by God's grace and his leading and and your very responsive generosity. We've been able to purchase our new facility on on White Lane. I don't claim to know the mind of God at all, but two things are very apparent to me. First of all, it became apparent to me that you clearly believe in the power of the gospel of Christ. You believe this. You clearly believe in the power of the preached word of God and you clearly desire to see the church be as effective and as glorious as possible. You've, you've demonstrated this not only with your amazing generous giving, which by the way has just blown the top off of all previous records at Grace Bible Church. I, I mean, the, the chart of giving here looks something like this. Whoop, and it's gone, thanks to you. But the second thing that's become apparent to me, the circumstances around procuring this building on White Lane were really despite our best efforts, not because of them. Isn't that how the Lord often works? You try, try, and try, and then something comes out of left field. And you go, why didn't you just do that in the first place? Well, because he wants us to trust him. The Lord clearly led in this purchase. And again, I don't know the mind of God, but I can't help wonder if God is rewarding us for having striven to be faithful as a church. And of course, this only motivates us to more faithfulness, right? 
We've said this before. If you're the coach of a team, the, the kid who shows up to practice early and stays late and works hard and, and is working hard, who are you going to start on game day? I don't know about you, but I want Grace Bible Church to be a starter on game day. We've said this before. God is a rewarder of those who do his will. I've said a few times we should be cautiously optimistic that being in escrow is not the same as having keys. Lord willing, we'll have keys Friday. So just pray every day between now and Friday. And finally, I don't do this a lot, but if you'll indulge me in the name of us knowing one another together, I would like to give you just a few personal reflections. I think it's seven. I think a lot about the church I, I pray for you. I, I think about what we're doing. It's, it's, a, it's a constant thing on my own mind. And for me as a pastor, this past year has been a tremendous year of personal reflection. And if anyone's interested, these are the things that are burning in my soul this past year or so. The first one is I felt in many ways we're living once again in an era in which Christ wrote to and evaluated the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. It feels like that time to me. I have never in all my years in the ministry sensed a, great, a greater urgency to pass muster, to be pleasing to Christ. And it's, I, I feel an urgency to urge us together to always know that he walks to and fro. He holds uh, all things in his hand and he is, he is evaluating us and we want to pass with flying colors. Second, I've also been more convinced than ever, ever before that the church it's a misuse of the church to just use the church as an outreach tool. That's a seeker-sensitive idea that the church can be made up of both believers and unbelievers. And one of the good things that COVID did do is it, it just shuttered many seeker-sensitive churches because you can't, uh, the one, maybe the one redeeming factor of all of our live streaming churches is that suddenly the entertainment churches just doesn't come through the same on a 14 and a half inch screen. Oh, look, there's a little smoke. I think that's fog. Oh, that, that guitar sounds kind of good through my little tiny speaker that I can barely see. But instead, people began to turn to truth because they knew that's what they needed. But I'm more convinced than ever before that the church is the household of the redeemed. You might sit among the people of God, but you cannot be part of the household till you come to faith in Christ. And so we acknowledge that openly. What does this mean? It means that while we proclaim the gospel every week to our gatherings, the, the first priority is the church. We craft our efforts around proclaiming Christ and maturing the saints because the minute that takes a back seat, the church has lost its way. It's now become people-pleasing. It's now become world-pleasing. Third thing I've reflected on, I've talked to many different pastors in the past couple of years, especially this past year even, and I've seen the gamut of what has happened in churches around our country. Basically, there are two major camps that happened in the church. The churches that exercised fear and submission to worldly ideas have languished, and many, many of them have closed their doors. And the other camp is that the churches that have exercised faith and the determination to preach the word, to gather, to not succumb to the world systems, to false gods and idols that we might name safety, distance, covering the image of God and mankind, covering the image of God to, his, uh, to uh, not give him glory, hatred disguised as enlightenment or wokeness, 
the idols of hatred of law enforcement who protect us from evil men, on and on and on. The churches who have instead stood for proclaiming Christ as the only answer to a world that's on fire. These churches have been blessed by the Lord and in many cases thrived beyond what they've ever even seen. And so we see once again that if we're faithful to Christ, He's faithful to us. It's another thing I've contemplated this week. I've always been motivated to preach the Word. Motivation is never a problem for me. I don't ever wake up on a Sunday and go, oh no, I've got to go to church now. That doesn't really happen to me. And I've preached in some contexts that can be pretty unmotivating before. I've preached to stone hearts and, and uh, people who are the only person more glad than me that the sermon was over was them. I thought I had somewhat of a grasp on the importance and the power of preaching the Bible as, as, as at a detailed level as we can. I've got to say that for me, the sense of determination, the sense of urgency is just going through the roof right now. I'm more convinced than ever before that the Word of God is a sharp, two-edged sword and that the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I've always been motivated for Sundays, but in my own heart, I, I sense an urgency that opening the Word of God together every week is, a, is, is mysterious, it's mighty, it's powerful, it's mandatory, and there is no other answer anywhere. There's a fifth thing I've reflected on. I've always believed that the shepherds must please Christ over men, but this has been tested severely in the past couple of years. I've had many hours and days and weeks of reflecting on the cost of standing for the Word of God, watching dear brothers in Canada, such as Tim Stevens and James Coates, being thrown into prison because they gather their churches together. For me personally, the cost has been not much, small, minuscule compared to men like that. But it has been enough that along with every shepherd, we've evaluated what are we supposed to do. And the answer has been quite simple. We keep preaching, we keep gathering until we're forcibly and bodily stopped from doing so. Then we do it again. And again and again and again. And you never stop. You never stop. I I don't know, maybe we're digging a basement under our White Lane building and that's where we're going to meet. But it must be despite any human opinion or objection. And the moment an unbeliever says churches should, you discount it at that moment. It doesn't matter. Fill in the rest of the blank. They have no idea what churches should do. Our eyes are fixed on pleasing one man only. And that is Jesus Christ. I've also reflected with disappointment on men and even whole organizations that I thought were pillars of standing for the church and for truth who in the past two years have caved into social and political pressures who have suddenly proclaimed the church's irrelevance in the name of trying to please unbelievers. Theologians writing articles on masks. I've written an article on masks. I haven't uh, published it yet, but it's an article on why masks cover the glory of God. Theologians writing on why we should please the government who is clearly power hungry. It's shocking to me to see men of God and whole gospel centered organizations beginning to let the world tell them what the so called real problems are. The real problems are racism and viruses and sexism. Instead of remaining faithful to proclaiming Christ, the one solution to the one problem, and that is sin. Even today, I know of a very large church, for example, whose lay elders have tied the hands 
of the trained pastoral staff as they insist that obeying COVID regulations is more important than gathering the people of God to hear the word of God. They have the largest sanctuary within any driving distance and they are barely meeting with anybody there at all. They are shirking their duty. Those lay elders will stand before God and answer for their cowardice. They're afraid. They refuse to trust the Lord. And we've talked about this before. I've also reflected and done quite a bit of study on the limits of obedience to the government. We want to be good citizens, right? Scripture commands that. We want to live quiet and and dignified lives. But what other limits to obedience to the government? Romans 13, 3 and 4 says that a good and reasonable government is not a terror to good conduct. Well, there's no conduct that is gooder than gathering to worship God. We take the example of Daniel in Daniel 6 who exercised his faith despite an edict against doing so. We take the example of Peter in Acts 5.29 who said we ought to obey God rather than men. How about this? Psalm 94, 20 and 21. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by law or by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous. We draw the line. We cannot follow them. The Christian martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor executed by the Nazis right before the end of the world of World War II, he said this quote, Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. And if you'll permit me just one more, I, I've reflected on probably more than ever before the idea of cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity, trying to present a faith that's devoid of repentance, devoid of, a, of a core, the core elements of the gospel. And for example, listen to the slippery slope in this quote from an article published just yesterday. Quote, When you believe in the finished work of Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension on your behalf, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your spirit. The Spirit's indwelling presence unites you to the Son so that in Him you receive the life and the love of the Father. You are home to the Holy Spirit. He lives in your inner being and works on your behalf, manifesting his peace in your pain, anxiety, and fear. You know what this article was about? It was yet another attempt to make Christ palatable to the unbeliever. There's no mention of sin, no mention of our offense against God, no mention of the need for repentance. Instead, if you vaguely believe in the historical nature of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit comes to help you feel better. That is not the gospel. So what is the church to do? What do we do? Very simply, we stay in our lane. The lane that God has given us. What is that lane? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Our new church sign is going to have one vital piece of information about our church. It's not going to be a people-pleasing sign by saying that we have one contemporary service, one traditional service, one service using only a harmonica and a ukulele, and one service for people to come in their pajamas. That is people-pleasing. Our new sign is not going to try to teach unbelievers to follow a system of ethics by putting cute sayings on the church sign. Our church sign will not say, Hipster Jesus loved you before you were cool. 
A church sign will not say, God answers knee mail. Our church sign will not say, our church is prayer conditioned. My favorite, our church sign will not say, are you wrinkled with worries? Come into the church for a faith lift. We will have one vital piece of information on our church sign. Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So how do we respond to the quickly evolving and changing world? How do we respond to the increase of wickedness around us? It's a long way to get to this answer by not changing the thing. And by being more determined than ever before to be the church. Here's our goal for 2022. It's simple. And you can repeat it after me. Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim that we might present everyone. That we might present everyone mature in Christ. Mature in Christ. Why? Repeat after me. He was manifested in the flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels. Seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. Believed on in the world. Taken up in glory. Taken up in glory. So what do we do? Nothing different. We just stay faithful. And pray that Christ returns in 2022. That would be a good addition. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us to be faithful in 2022. Our Father, even from this pulpit in this church, many sermons have been preached about spiritual battles. And in many senses, at times, they're theoretical in nature. They're preparatory in nature. But the evil one unleashed on the church in the past months. And so we would take up the armor of God. We would take up in particular the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces, it divides the soul and spirit. It knows our thoughts. And so, Lord, we turn to you to ask you to be a help to us. We do desire as a local church to be pleasing to the head of the church. We desire to be an entity which brings a smile to heaven and not a groan. And so, Lord, make us more so the household of faith. Make us those that are faithful to you. Make us those who are light and salt in a world that is dark and without the flavor of heaven. Make us those that present the gospel to our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and our family. Make us those who gather together with a determination that any Lord's Day could be the last one. I pray for our shepherds, Lord, that we would shepherd with fearlessness and with an intentionality of proclaiming the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ. And I pray for our members, Lord, that they would sense the urgency to live the faith that they have proclaimed, to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called, to walk in the manner worthy of the gospel, to be about the kingdom work in every area of life, whether that is training small children to obey because it's pleasing to God, whether it is making your home one of peace, whether it is being a a good and godly employee or employer, being good and godly church members. Lord, use us. We pray to be on the, the starting team, as it were, 
We pray that you would use us in these coming months, particularly as you have graciously gifted us with a new facility. Might it be a beacon of light where the gospel is proclaimed and Christ is exalted. And it is in his name we pray, amen.